Well, Stonehill's commitment to world missions uh, runs far and wide, and it has for decades, and it also runs deep in my heart. I'm pretty sure as an elementary student, I walked in down uh, the aisle with a flag uh, when I was a little kid. What a blessing. We are deeply grateful as well for the partnership of Stonehill Church. This summer, you're sending a team to Rhode Island to work in inner city parks with us. Can't wait. Thrilled about that. You're also sending Emily Perez up uh, as an uh, intern with us, a women's intern for the summer. Is Emily, there she is. And I'm thankful for her. I just can't say enough about this church and the depth of its influence in my own heart and uh, for the glory of Jesus Christ worldwide. When I was a kid, we used to play King of the Hill. Uh, it, it amounted to a, a big dirt pile. Uh, and and uh, so the, the king would get on top of this dirt pile and uh, the rest of the kids would try to rush the summit and, and knock the, uh, the, the king off the hill. It's all fun and games until you grow up. Because when you grow up, you realize the king of the hill gets played out not on a dirt pile, but by leaders in every kind of social structure that there is. And to stay on that hill, leaders often resort to abusing their power. This gets played out in families, in schools, in churches, and in the nations of the world. This happened in ancient Israel. In Ezekiel 34, God says, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and I will hold them accountable for my flock. Can you imagine hearing God say to you, I am against you. Oof. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. And God in his loving leadership says that he will provide a different kind of leader and that leader was Jesus, the good shepherd. He did not come to kill his followers, he came to die for his followers. He did not neglect the lost, he sought them. Jesus is categorically different, a different kind of a leader. He was the answer to what was happening in ancient Israel. And Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, from which, we, from which Debbie uh, read uh, just now, in Matthew is telling us Jesus the King is here. He is a good shepherd, he is a good king, Enter into his kingdom. Be subject to his rule in your life. Submit to him. And so the preface to this sermon is a clear declaration that God hates the abuse of power. 
and so should we. But we must not eliminate leadership and submission. When we talk about submission today, we're not talking about dangerous submission. A small number of dangerous pastors will use pulpits today to manipulate and abuse. A small number of pastors today will be living double lives. These people must be called out. They must be addressed biblically and confronted, if necessary, prosecuted. But when Jesus saw the evil leaders of Israel, he did not eliminate leadership and submission. He gave us a new leader. And then he calls us to lead as under shepherds like our Savior. So here's the main point today. The greatest mercy that we can offer the world is the mercy of Christ's salvation and his kingly rule. And the church is the embassy of this message and his rule on earth. So let's, let's break this into two parts, and then I will relate the, uh, the, this message from Matthew, this passage from Matthew, to the work of church planting. And I encourage you to keep the passage open in front of you. This is really about the word of God this morning. So let's look back into Matthew chapter 16, uh, starting in verse 13. Point number one, Jesus is the Messiah King. We are blessed when we submit to him. So Matthew tells us that this conversation happened with his disciples as they came into Caesarea Philippi. Now, in Caesarea Philippi, there was a well-known cave, and um, at the entrance to this cave, Philip, the ruler over this region, had built a temple to Caesar. There were niches carved in the wall of the rock for statues of different gods. And so as they walked into this region, it's most likely that Jesus and his disciples would have seen this. And uh, we can most likely imagine Jesus, well, all of them looking at this and him saying in that context, essentially, well, who do you say that I am? Am I just one of these? Who do people say that I am? Verses 14 through 16, Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Well, his answer is correct. He didn't have it all correct, though. Jesus was the promised, is the promised king from heaven, but he's not entirely right because when Peter said that, he was essentially expecting a ruler who would break the back of Rome and Rome's oppressive rule over them. They're, they're harsh uh, domineering rule over the Jews. We know, of course, that Jesus came as the dying, suffering king to crush sin and death and Satan, a far, far greater oppressor than Rome ever was. Well, there are some similarities between the temple of all the gods and Caesarea Philippi in our own culture. We have a lot to choose from. We are the masters of choice. We, we love to make our choices. We don't do arranged marriages for the most part anymore. Uh, we date and choose. Uh, we don't have to live where we grew up. We can choose to move wherever we, wherever we would like. Choose your church. 
massive selection of products and services. You can choose a different you, or we think so. At a very fundamental level, we live as if we are free to choose our own truth. We believe that we are on an individual journey, able to construct what's right or wrong. In short, we are deeply committed to our own kingship. And this makes the notion, I think, of submission a very difficult one. It goes against our instincts. The challenge for the people living in Caesarea Philippi was to choose among all of the options for a religious ruler. I think that we moderns have by and large made our choice over the past hundred years. Our choice is we will live for ourselves. I am my own king. And so Jesus' question to his disciples is a question for all of us. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he irrelevant, just an interesting religious person? That's one option. The second option is always important, and I need him to serve me. He's one of the tools in my life toolbox to make things go better. And sadly, many who call themselves Christians think of Christ this way. The third option is that he is, in fact, God's anointed king. And in this case, you're no longer the one who is ruling your life. He guides you. You submit to him. This is a fork in the road for all of us. There's a little booklet that I like. We use it in our summer outreach with kids. There's a kid's version. Uh, it's called, Who Will Be King? None of us will get far in life without answering that question honestly. Frankly, there's only one right answer. Jesus is king. And if we've answered Jesus, then we will need to remind ourselves every day, won't we? Get up every day and say, I chose Jesus to submit to. All right, here we go. Here's a new day. Every exhortation of the New Testament is an extension of Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. Michael Kruger says, submitting is a substantive and weighty act of self-denial. It can feel like death, even though we know that it's the path of life. Which leads me to saying just one more thing uh, before we finish this first point about submitting to Christ our King. Jesus is only, always, ever good for us. Jesus the King is only, always, ever good to you and for you. You know, the, the, the most common way that the New Testament describes Jesus is compassionate. When we feel sin, he feels mercy toward us. When we feel burdened by rules, Jesus says, my burden is light. When we're foolish, Jesus promises wisdom. <clears throat> when we feel unloved, Jesus reminds us that he loved us so much that he gave his life to die for us. And when we sin, he's like the prodigal father waiting for us to repent, to turn toward him. And there he is with open arms ready to throw a party. You know, submitting, yes, submitting goes against our instincts. 
but submitting to a Jesus like this really shouldn't? Jesus is the Messiah King. We are blessed when we submit to him. Second point, the church is the embassy of King Jesus on earth. Let's move on to verse 18. There are details of this passage that I'm going to leave for Tracy to answer. He's, you're welcome, Tracy, wherever you are. What I want us to see today is that we are blessed when we submit to Jesus as good rule. That was point one. And number two, that he has established an embassy for his rule on earth. And that embassy is the local church. Peter declares that Jesus is the savior of the world. Jesus responds to that. On the, uh, the, he responds by saying that uh, on the basis of that true declaration, Peter, I will build my church. In other words, the foundational belief of a true church is that Jesus is the savior of the world. Then on to verse 19, continue to look at it with me. Jesus says that he will entrust to the church the keys of the kingdom. Here, he's still talking about Peter's gospel declaration that Jesus is the savior of the world. So we, we know this, keys um, can unlock uh, uh, the door into your house or it can lock it. Similarly, the gospel is the key that provides entrance into God's kingdom and at the same time prevents entry into the kingdom. Binding and loosing are the words here. So how, how does the gospel provide entry into God's kingdom? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 10, 13, and 14, and we could look at any, any number of different places. Romans 10, 13, 14, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the same thing as saying everyone who calls out to God for salvation from sin will enter his kingdom. But Paul adds, how are they to believe in him of whom they haven't heard? In other words, I can't believe in Jesus for salvation unless someone has told me. So the keys are the gospel and the preaching of the gospel, the declaration of the gospel, which when believed unlocks the kingdom to the hearer. On the other hand, when the church preaches the gospel, it is also saying, all other alternatives are not the way of salvation. You can't buy your way into the kingdom. You can't work your way into the kingdom. These other gods are not the way into the kingdom. So Jesus has entrusted the church with the authority to declare what the way to God is and isn't. The language he uses, as I said, is the language of loosing, unlocking, and binding or locking. The church has the authority and the responsibility to also say this is who a Christian is and who a Christian isn't. And so the church, as an embassy of God's kingdom, says this is what a true gospel confession is, 
And this is who a true gospel confessor is. In other words, this is a true Christian. In 1986, John and I were in Poland together doing more of the same sort of thing that he was telling you about. And uh, my passport was stolen. Long story, we won't go into it. So I spent three days in Warsaw getting my passport replaced. That means I had to go to the US Embassy. And I had to have them say, we see that you are a US citizen, so we will reissue a passport for you. I still have that passport tucked away. It's kind of cool. So like, and my passport's from Warsaw, Poland. They had the authority to do that. They weren't making me a citizen. They were affirming my citizenship. I was born as a citizen of the United States. Likewise, a church does not make you a citizen of the kingdom. It affirms your citizenship. We become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven by rebirth. The church affirms that by seeing my confession in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, just like Peter, and by seeing the fruit that results from it. Salvation is by grace, through faith, necessarily demonstrated in good works. Those are inseparable. Well, let's draw this together. Friends, our, our lives, our hearts are broken by sin. We face the judgment and wrath of a holy God. And apart from Christ, we live out lives of chaos from sin. It may look nice on the outside, but it's, it's chaos, it's brokenness apart from Christ. Only a saving king can rescue us. Only the death, death and resurrection of Christ make forgiveness from sin possible. His rule and his reign lead us out of the destructive lives of chaos that result from unforgiven sin. What he commands us to do is only, always, ever good for us. And the church is entrusted with this message of hope. It is the embassy of God's good kingdom on earth. It is the megaphone on earth of God's saving, rescuing message, which is precisely why we plant churches. That's the title of this sermon, Why Plant Churches? And there's my answer. It's why New England urban church planting plants churches in poor communities. Let me repeat what I said before and add to it a little bit. The greatest mercy the church can provide to a hurting world is the mercy of Christ's salvation and his rule. By asking others to submit to the authority of God, you are loving them deeply. The greatest need of our ravaged inner cities is the message of Jesus Christ, his salvation, and his kingly loving rule over our lives. 
This shapes our mission and it drives the passion of my heart to see the cross at the center of these chaotic communities. It's the only hope, friends. It's the only hope. When we Christians go into the inner city, and I, I say this with, um, with an asterisk next to it, because I number so many of you or a number of you are serving with Tone Bellamy at Transformation Church, and you do this so well. Um, but so often when Christians go into the inner city, we lose our theological head. We see poverty and addiction and violence and poor education, and so we respond with money and addiction recovery programs and anger management and education. These are important. Please hear me. These are important. But unless the root of our issues are addressed at the heart level, there will be no lasting change, and there, Christ will not be glorified, and that's why we exist. At the center of all of this must be the cross of Jesus Christ. A friend of mine who's done work like this in other parts of the world, uh, uh, I, I've heard people ask him, where in the world do you start in the urban inner city communities? And he says, by teaching the book of Romans. And then he stops and he just looks at you and waits for you to react because that sounds so out of place. We start with a cross, we work in concentric circles outward, of course, providing job training and parenting classes and addiction recovery and coats and food. But friends, the cross of Jesus Christ is the only thing that's gonna make a difference. It's only transformed lives that will transform families, that will transform communities and who will bring glory to Jesus Christ. So we're devoted to church planting in urban inner cities. These aren't popular places to live. They're often dangerous. Churches in these communities will almost never be financially self-sustaining. And unfortunately, the church planting movement over the last 40 years, as rich and as wonderful as it's been across the country and around the world, has by and large neglected our inner cities. Well, it's no mystery as to why. These are, yeah, as I said, uh, the churches will never be financially self-sustaining and they're cross-cultural for those who have not grown up in that context. One of those communities is Central Falls, Rhode Island. Central Falls is known for its poverty, for its poor education, uh, for its violence. In uh, 2010, Central Falls made the national news. You can still read an article about it on uh, CNN.com uh, when the, uh, the school board uh, fired all of its teachers and all of its administrators and just started from scratch, started all over again. Education was so bad. Last year, uh, Jonathan and his wife, Teddy, and their three kids uh, moved from Puerto Rico to plant a church in Central Falls. I have the privilege of preaching the word here. Jonathan's the real hero. Uh, these guys on the street planting churches in these communities uh, are my heroes. Jonathan's halfway through a two-year pastoral apprenticeship uh, before Lord Willing planting next year. Uh, Elizabeth Berry has served as a missionary in Central Asia, um, served there for a couple of years in a dangerous place and uh, had to leave because of COVID, reached out to us and said, can I come work with you guys in New England? And we said, absolutely. Well, after about a year of applications and all sorts of things. Um, Elizabeth, bless her heart, is a substitute teacher in the middle school in Central Falls, Rhode Island. I would not be able to do it for an hour 
She does it uh, week after week after week. Building relationships, laying foundation for uh, a church plant. The mission of New England Church Planting is to plant gospel-centered uh, churches all throughout New England. We're grateful for your support for us, for your prayer for us. The gospel for the inner city is the same gospel that you and I need. Salvation from our sin, forgiveness by the God that we have by nature rebelled against, and submission to a loving king whose rule is always, only, ever good for us. Lived out in the mess and the beauty of a local church as a family of saved and submitting people for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. May it be true, Father, that we know you and know you as the one who has given us a new shepherd, a good shepherd, saving us, giving of his life for us, and then leading us, ruling us. By your spirit, give us hearts of obedience that we may flourish, experience the shalom that Jesus brought to us so that it would redound again for his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.